When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Have you been considering switching to the no-dig method for growing your own vegetables? Or are you simply curious to find out more about how it all works? Hello, I'm Blake, and on today's episode, I'm speaking to author and champion of no-dig gardening, Charles Dowding. Charles has been a leading authority on all things no-dig since 1983, and now uses his time to teach others his growing techniques. We started by going back to basics, as I asked him to tell us more about what no-dig gardening actually is. No-dig is a really simple process where you leave your soil undisturbed. And that leaves all the soil life busy working away without interruption. And all the organisms in the soil, rather like us, like to eat. And so we provide organic matter as their food, just as happens in nature. And that we put on the surface, as happens in nature. It's copying nature, uh, which is really why it works so well, I feel. And the most suitable organic matter for gardening, especially for vegetable growing, which is my speciality, although Nodig works for growing anything actually, but for vegetables in particular, we use compost. And that's because it's a really concentrated food for the soil organisms, more than food for the plants. So we're feeding the soil rather than feeding the plants. And the the food in there just stays available in non-soluble form for a very long time. So you you just feed your soil and then plant whatever you want after that. And how did you come to start doing this? You know, what was your journey to no dig and what made you think about, you know, did you once dig and, and how did that change come about? Oh, well, I'd grown up on a farm actually and uh, was familiar with using tractors to cultivate the soil. Uh, like rotovators and yeah I did as a teenager I didn't really think about that I just did it and then at the age of 22 I started a market garden organic and that that's when I started thinking about soil and I went around other organic market gardens in that year 1982 and noticed that they were just full of weeds and that's what I really wanted to avoid <laughs> so many weeds <laughs> so I um Look, look, did some reading in Soil Association and came across a book by a lady called Ruth Stout. She was mulching with hay, no dig, and that made sense to me. So I then bought a load of old hay, much to my father's horror, he was a farmer, and put that down and then planted my plants the next spring, having made beds. So I, I rotivated initially, made beds, and then I thought, right, I'm going no dig, hay mulch, off we go. And that should, the mulch should stop the weeds growing. But I lost a lot of plants to slugs, and that's what drew my attention to the kind of food you put on the surface uh, in a dry climate like Ruth Stout's is Connecticut, it's hot summers and cold winters, no slugs, basically. In the UK, that's why compost is so suitable, because it does not give 
habitat to slugs. And and that's I went forward from there and, and just found it worked. You know, I kind of dared. There wasn't much precedent for it. I'd read about it a bit, but I didn't know anyone doing it. I always think about my granddad who'd been gardening for decades, you know, um, and loved his veg patch. But uh, uh, the thought of telling him that he should stop digging after years and years and years, I'm not sure what he would have said to that. That was like a staple part of his calendar. So for anybody that has has been gardening in a certain way for a long time, what are those kind of first steps that they should be taking if they want to give this a try and and but maybe in a manageable way rather than just overturning their whole, you know, allotment or, or veg patch? Well, really simple, actually, I would say. I'd recommend that anybody just devote a small area. If, if you're a bit sceptical, if you're not sure, fair enough, um, just try a bit, you know, carry on doing your normal soil preparation on one part of your plot or garden and try some no-dig on the rest. And the starting process, if you're, if you if you've got, cultivated ground already with probably not too many weeds is um you you could just rake it level pull out any weeds you see and and spread five centimeter nice compost on top that that would do you could even spread two or three centimeters an inch it doesn't have to be a huge amount the important thing is to get a little bit on top get get it level that makes it easier to get an an even layer and and you're you're underway and the worms will be thrilled (laughs) they're not being disturbed anymore and they'll come up looking for the food and in that doing that they'll be improving your drainage and aeration in a very stable way and one interesting thing about no dig is because you haven't disturbed the soil the the structure stays stable um if you're used to cultivating it's probably good to think about things in a slightly different way for example that roots actually in my experience they don't like soil too fluffed up and they like soil firm, and that's not the same as compact. Um, you know, there's often confusion around those words. It, and so, like, for example, with no dig, you can walk on your beds. You can. I'm not saying you should, but you, you actually can if you need to, to reach the middle or that kind of thing. It doesn't damage the structure because the st- structure's firm and stable without being fluffed up and loose. So that's just one example of that. There are differences which follow from making that starting point, but the, the starting point is really simple. Just leave your soil alone, rake it level, feed the surface. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's like it's such a part of your mindset that you shouldn't walk on the soil, and and that's kind of uh, something that we're all told a lot, or you know, as we're growing up from from experienced gardeners. I know that I was not allowed to go on the soil, so um, that's such an interesting change of mindset there. Yes, and that's because, like a lot of gardener sayings, there are hidden assumptions behind nearly all of them. And the hidden assumption here is that you shouldn't walk on your soil because you've you've broken it up and fluffed it up and made it all loose and crumbly, which you thought was a good idea. But if you haven't done that, then the not walking on the soil doesn't apply anymore. Do you see what I mean? It's like it's not being said, but it's assumed. How about weeds then? You touched on this a little bit. Um, I think uh, for a lot of people, the idea of not digging, you know, how do you get rid of those weeds and and um, and how do you deal with that? So if you have many weeds at the beginning, this is where cardboard comes in. You, you don't have to use cardboard to do no dig. It's become a bit of a ritual, I think, that, and people think you have to do it. Uh, but it's it's only useful if you have a lot of weeds and it's a very quick and simple way just matte brown cardboard not the shiny sort take all the tape off pull any staples out overlap the different pieces they might be small might be large whatever by about 15 centimeters so that your ground is completely covered with one layer if you've got persistent cooch grass it might be worth putting two layers 
on top of what's growing there. That deprives it of light for a period of time, not forever, but for enough time to make quite a difference in the vigour of the weed roots. And if the weeds are things like chickweed, uh, lawn grasses even, um, buttercup, they're not too vigorous, especially if they've been mown, and they might well die under the cardboard, but if you have cooch grass, that probably will poke through, and then you need to remove it again. But what you're doing is you're tiring out the parent root, which is still there. The weed roots are still there in the soil, but they only have so much energy. They only contain so many resources to keep regrowing, which they will try and do. And once they've used up all those resources, they suddenly just die. <clears throat> and I, that's a delightful moment. I've, I've had this experience several times. So, for example, with cooch grass, in my first spring at Homemakers 2013, and I'd mulched with cardboard and compost on top. And within about three months, there was quite a bit of cooch grass pushing up through the compost, through the cardboard, then the compost to the surface. And it looked like, well, this wasn't working. However, I kept pulling the cooch grass or levering it out with a trial, the new growth. And then suddenly, this, this was going on all spring, a little bit depressing at times. <laughs> but <laughs> by imagine. the end of July, going into August, suddenly the cooch weakened rapidly. And by the end of August, none. Zero, completely wow. gone, 100% elimination. And the following year, I succeeded in that with bindweed, uh, again, by continual removal of the regrowth. For me, it was a really good proof of how you can tire out these parent roots. It's just a question of how long, according to what the weed is. And so, ground elder, maybe that's just over a year, cooch grass, a bit less, bindweed, yeah, two, two summers of being persistent. <clears throat> And then horsetail, well, maybe five years. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. The principle yeah. is the same. You just have to hold your nerve and, and be patient with it. Yeah. And, and I like, um, you know, I do courses here. And like, so I talk to gardeners a lot who think you're changing. And, and one of them made, made a nice comment. She said, um, there's a lot of trust in this, isn't there? <laughs> and I can see her point. She was used to putting a spade or fork in and kind of sorting it out herself physically. And you're not doing that. You're You're allowing nature to do it, but you're helping... Or you're pushing nature in the direction you want to go, which in this case is having pretty much no weeds. Because once you've got rid of those perennial weeds, like the cooch grass, say, subsequently you don't get so much regrowth, spontaneous regrowth of annual weeds, which are often associated with soil cultivations. I'm sure we've all seen that. I've certainly seen it. You, you rotivate the soil, you get a lot of chickweed, for example. You know, there's even a saying around here, chickweed follows the rotivator. And the reason for that is because Chickweed is, has very binding roots and rotivators broken up the soil. And so the chickweed is a fantastic soil correction mechanism. You know, it's a recovery process in, in every sense of the word. So, so there's always a reason for regrowth and, uh, weed growth. And with no dig, we're not giving the soil much reason to grow weeds. We're just leaving it undisturbed, calm. We're feeding it. The soil's happy. doesn't need to grow weeds. And, that, you know, I'm saying this from experience. This is not a theoretical statement. And I, I get this fantastic feedback from so many people all over the world saying, wow, <laughs> I wasn't expecting this, you know, so, so so little time needed to weed. I think there's a bit of a parallel to maybe switching from chemicals to more organic techniques as well there, where it's like, you know, nature will nature will help you out in the garden and um, you've just got to give it a chance, really, haven't you? And um, and it will kind of reset itself, but it can take time. So they're so right, yes. And it comes back to that thing of trusting and, and also actually, you know, I, I take it back, especially in Britain, to the Victorian times and how we've got a lot of these understandings are very deeply embedded into horticulture. And I think we have too much rever reverence for the Victorian approach and, and the work ethic. 
And and I'm not saying for one minute that I'm uh, extolling being lazy. And some people say that, well, no, Dick's lazy. But it's actually not, because you're, you're, but you're using your time in a much more constructive way. So, for example, you could make more compost. You know, that's always useful. You actually don't need more compost for no dig, but it's it, it's more visible. And I think that's why people think you do need extra compost. Sometimes I'll recommend using more at the beginning just to give your soil a really strong lift and, and get the fertility high and reduce the weeds. But ongoing, year after year, the amount of compost you need per kilogram of food produced is actually... In my experience here, where I'm doing trials on it, is a little bit less with no dig than if you're digging. So don't be overwhelmed by the thought that you need an unrealistic amount of compost. Now you don't, and it'll. Yeah, be- I've heard. I have heard that before, and I think people sometimes, when they're new to it, do think that and um, uh, think it might be expensive even to to switch to no dig. So, um, but you're saying it isn't. No, okay, and and well, related to that, you know. Because you are enabling soil life to work so efficiently and effectively, you need less of other inputs. I mean, here I'm growing two crops a year, fantastic vegetables, and I'm not putting on any more compost in the summer. So it's one application a year. That's already very efficient. It's very time-saving. And I'm not using any feeds or fertilizers. I'm not using any slug pellets. So I'm saving a lot of money on other inputs. I also recommend other ways you can save money, for example, not having wooden sides to the beds. Um, you know, if you want them, fine, but you don't have to have them. You can have a raised bed without wooden sides. It's entirely, totally possible. And that now that wood's more expensive, you know, that's quite a saving. So really, you're, initially, I, I do recommend buying some compost just to kind of get the ball rolling. And But after that, you'll, you'll find it very economical and it's the only main expense you need to make. Um, so if somebody's starting out and they and they want to kind of just tentatively take steps towards this, um, can they take a more low-dig approach rather than going to a full, full uh, yeah. no-dig uh, overnight <laughs> type of thing? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess you could if you want. I, I can't see why you'd want to do that, to be honest. I, I, not that I want to put anyone off, but yeah, <laughs> by all means. I think you'll notice already just doing... Interfering less with the soil, moving it around less, uh, you, you'll well, you'll you'll find your life easier, and your soil life will be happier. I'm sure of that. Um, all those organisms in the soil that are disturbed every time the soil is moved, basically, uh, you know, better left alone. We we've got a trial here where I'm doing uh, th- two strips side by side, and one of them I fork the soil actually, just not full digging. So a bit like what you're saying, low dig. <laughs> so we stick a garden fork in vertically and just give it a wiggle, a, a lever. Not a massive disturbance. It's just to see what effect that might have. And then the strip next to the the soil, which has been forked, is classic no dig, just total um, no disturbance. Both strips have the same amount of compost on top, and we see what happens. Growth is pretty similar. However, when we come to weigh the harvests, which we do all the time, there's usually about 5% less weight of harvest where the ground's been forked, even though the leaves look quite similar. And I think this might be to do with the even forking or low dig, you know, any kind of disturbance, you're, you're damaging some of the mycorrhizal fungal network, which helps plant roots to find nutrients and moisture. So growth can still happen, but it's just not quite so strong and healthy. And leaves that might look the same just don't seem to weigh so much. You know, it's that kind of small but interesting difference. And so we've spoken a bit about edibles, but if people are only growing ornamental plants, um, how might this apply to them? Would it would there be any differences, or is it exactly the same um, process? The process for growing ornamentals and flowers is really similar. You may just only find that you need a bit less compost. It's that plants perhaps don't have quite the same um, 
nutrient needs as vegetables and you'll get lovely blooms. Three quarters of British flower growers, commercial flower growers, three quarters and probably more even now are no dig. You know, they really find it's working so well for them, uh, reducing their weeding and time effort and everything. So I've got lovely ornamental borders here, which are no dig, and, and they're so easy to to run, you know, because of the, the reduced amount of weeding. One application of compost, usually in the winter, and then by spring, the frost has broken up the lumps on top. You can just break it very lightly to disturb any new weed seedlings and start planting. Couldn't be simpler. Um, when's the best time to start then in the year? And, and what would a regular gardening year look like um, as a no-dig gardener? Well, you can start at any time. There's no preclusion of dates. Um, you could make your first no-dig bed in literally any month of the year. Once you've got your system up and running, you usually we find, and I think most people will find, that the best time or easiest time to put on the annual feed of organic matter whether it's compost or if, if you're doing ornamental gardening, you know, you've got big shrubs. It, it could be just wood chip, actually. In fact, I put wood chip on my raspberry bed, uh, which is more of a woody plant and seems to really like that. It, that's stimulating more fungal activity. And usually we do that in the winter because partly because the ground is more bare, you've got more access to the soil. And then it's kind of job done <laughs> even before the winter and you, you can relax a bit. And you're ready to go in the spring. It, you know, it takes out that spring rush. And you, you don't have to worry about at least feeding your soil, soil life. Uh, it's just ready for you. So having said that, if if, if there's something in the ground in the winter, say, say with vegetables, you're growing some winter silos, for example, then there's no room to put the organic matter down in the winter. Then we'll put it down in the spring once we've cleared those plants, just for example. And, th and then going through the year, uh, you're not needing to do or worry about any kind of soil cultivation or feeding. And you can really just concentrate on sowing, planting, picking, replanting with vegetables. This is what we do. And, the, you know, what, twist out the uh, remains of, of, of any plant that's there, a cabbage, stalk, lettuce, um, a charred stump, whatever it might be. Leave most of the roots in the ground. Uh, maybe just rake it level if it's disturbed a bit. Or if we've harvested garlic, we'll actually walk on the beds. Again, that thing of keeping it firm. So the garlic comes out, that upheaves the soil a bit. I'll push it down with my foot to to keep it um, firm there and keep the moisture in as well. And then just replant. So you, you, you just keep going the whole year and you can keep your beds full all the time. You can even, because there are not many weeds, you can do interplanting, which is where you you slot in plants or seeds between existing plants. Garlic's again a good example, like um, sometime in May, which is about a month before it finishes, you could sow carrots or plant some beetroot or whatever it might be. And then those plants are coming ready to get going in big time once you've made the, the initial harvest. So lots of possibilities for doing being creative. I always think that that interplanting is uh, perhaps a step um, too organised for me. I'm not sure I quite have the uh, planning ability to do that, but I'm always very impressed by anybody that does. I urge people to think creatively, at least. You know, it, it's not difficult. None of this is difficult. It's it's just um, looking at your soil in a different way. I think that's a, probably a key thing for no dig. If if you're if you're new to it, and it, and it's about sort of taking your foot off the gas a bit. It, it like I liken it to making bread, where my method of making bread is no knead, so I don't need the dough at all. And I just spoon it from the the bowl where I've mixed the flour and my sourdough starter into the tin and leave it to rise overnight, bake it in the morning. It's just so simple and quick. It makes it possible and achievable. And, and that for me is like no dig and pr probably a few other things one could find out as well. We're very good at overcomplicating things often, aren't we? And perhaps just yeah. uh, simplifying is the answer. Yeah. And, you know, there's a tendency to think that 
simple is silly sometimes, I think, you know, which is such yeah. a pity. Uh, like you say, I think the desire for complication comes from, well, I think it's partly actually from people wanting to set themselves up as teachers. And, you know, they're the ones who know. So we're all conditioned, you know, from going to school that we believe in authority and that kind of thing. But I really feel with no dig, it it it, it opens the way for for individuals, people to to discover things more for themselves and and keep your eyes and ears open and watch your plants more, uh, feel your soil. There's that nice thing about microbes as well, where being around the soil and getting your hands in it, there's this um, bacteria called Bacillum vacca, which uh-huh. is um, trigger to our bodies producing serotonin, which is the feel feel good mood factor in our brains and i think that's one reason why people love gardening you know <laughs> we we don't know all the scientific reasons for this but i like to speculate on that you know there's so much research now on how microbes in the gut as well are linked to microbes in the brain and and with with looking you know getting your soul really healthy you've got more chance in my view of of, of achieving that uh, so there's a feeling of well-being there as well I think we all feel that, don't we? And um, perhaps people have always felt that in the garden and we're just kind of talking about it a bit more now. But it is amazing how being out there, even for a small amount of time each day, what that does for our well-being and, and our mental health so um, can can really help. It's just great. I, I love it. And um, I, I get a lot of feedback on social media from people who've taken up gardening, actually, and, and they're, they're finding that Nodig is a really good entry point because... It is so simple and straightforward, and they say they can just follow my videos and bing, bang, bong, and, and they've got a nice garden. And um, there's just one caveat I should mention, uh, which is coming up recently, and that's if you're starting out, how you get hold of decent compost. Mm-hmm. And I just need to explain that word as well, because compost means, uh, in my book anyway, it means anything decomposed, and it does not mean that it has to be perfect it won't necessarily be uh, black and just evenly textured and crumbly it could be a little bit lumpy so like old manure for example animal manure that that's compost so once it's a year old or more it's going brown and and um you can see the decomposition of the bedding in particular has happened so there are many possibilities for compost, and that includes compost you can buy, like spent mushroom compost, green waste compost, um, your own leaf mold, your own compost, um, compost you might get from the village churchyard that, <laughs> where they've just dumped the grass mowings in the corner. You know, all of that can serve. But then you've just got the question of residues in it, and there's a really tricky one has been coming into horse manure in particular recently, where... Um, weed killer that's been sprayed on it and it's got some active ingredients that don't break down in the heap and that means that they can still be active weed killer when you're spreading this horse manure particularly horse manure uh, on your on your bed and one way you can check for this if you're not sure is to get hold of a bit um, maybe before you do delivery and sow some broad beans in it and if they're still healthy after three to four weeks then it's okay because they're very susceptible to this particular um, active ingredient, which is called pyralid, if, if anyone's wondering, it's P-Y-R-A-L-I-D. If you put that in search, you, you'll be surprised at what comes up, but it'll give you an idea of what's out there. Um, and, and with all the different types of compost that you mentioned there, do you mix and match them? Are there, are there certain ones that you would put if you were growing a certain crop or, or another crop? Yeah, I, you can use any of them, and it's not so much about what you're growing, because this is... The composts are more about feeding soil organisms than about being a fertilizer or feed for plants. So 
certainly, I, I like to use maybe one one year and one another year, or, or a bit of each. You don't need to physically mix them, but you could just put a bit of one on the ground and then a bit of the other. And uh, Again, you know, just using whatever's most convenient for you, whatever's to hand. Uh, there's no one particular formula for how you do this. Um, you, you're free to be creative. The main thing is you're putting organic matter on the surface, food for your soul life. You make it sound so easy. I, I like this idea that you can't really go too far wrong. It's very appealing. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm definitely sold. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about companion planting, which I know we're steering off a little bit uh, from, from the main conversation here. But do, do you companion plant and do you have some kind of um, recommendations on, on what people should plant together? Yeah, very much. It's really interesting topic, um, largely because I, I would like to broaden the definition of companion planting. For me, it's not about specific plants liking specific other plants. It's more about plants in general liking companionship, friendship being proximate. So uh, one example I use is multi-sowing, which some of your listeners might have heard to heard about, where you uh, sow a few seeds in a, in a, say, a module cell and plant them out as a clump. You don't disturb them. They go in the ground with their mates. So you've got four beetroot together or six onions or ten spring onion plants, seedlings, all there together, and they swell apart as they grow. They seem to really like that. They like that thing, you know, as, as seedlings in particular, they, they don't like being sort of a long way away from the, <laughs> any neighbouring little seedling. <laughs> so they're in the ground, in the clump, and, and growth is stronger. You know, for me, that's a kind of companion planting, you, even though it's not a different vegetable or flower involved. But then you've got other interesting ones where um, it's often said, for example, I'm, I'm told often that fennel, Florence fennel is is a really, really bad companion. No, no plants like Florence fennel or it doesn't like other plants. And I regularly use it as an interplant or plant other things between it it's because it's a lovely feathery overhanging leaves actually work really well. Say when you plant dwarf French beans close to it and then the fennel finishes in, in the early summer and your dwarf French beans then flourish. And, and I find all of that works really well. So I would encourage anyone to actually ignore most of those again complications for me you know there's, there's, there's kind of rules um the, the, pretty much any plant likes any other plant the main thing is that they they're going to have enough light and space to flourish and that's more about you know just learning good spacings between different plants like i wouldn't put a lettuce too close to a courgette plant for example and uh, so yeah there's, there's many interesting ways to look at it and this links to one more thing, which is again is another. It's not exactly a rabbit hole, but it's, it's a big topic. Or, but but of, of freedom, really, um, because I'm I'm finding that the traditional four year rotation is not necessary. You know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying you certainly don't have to do it as a rule. Uh, I've actually got a trial bed here where I'm growing uh, now this spring potatoes. I've planted there for the eighth consecutive year in the same place and the wow. previous seven years of potatoes in that same piece of soil have been great and there's no build-up of disease or pest and, and the fertility is maintaining we put on this usual ration of about three centimeters new compost every autumn uh, grow potatoes and leeks actually in, in the same bed every year and, and i'm just using that as an example because what that leads to is that you don't need to divide your garden into blocks of plant families so traditionally with vegetables you know you have your your brassicas in one quarter you'll have your alliums in another quarter maybe potatoes in another quarter and the final quarter is sort of odds and ends like salads and what have you instead um what i 
recommend and we do here and, and I'm encouraging other people to do is, is just uh, companion planting, if, you like, <laughs> if I want another word, where you mix things up. So um, like here, because I'm, I'm on a market garden scale, I'll, I'll grow a bed of onions here and a bed of onions over there. And in between, there might be a bed of cabbage, the, a, a block of roots, uh, carrots, for example, there's some beetroot over there. And so it, it makes a kind of patchwork effect that's very beautiful. And that, that's an important part of, of enjoying your gardening, you know, to make it, make it beautiful. It looks less regimented and, and you've, you've got that freedom. And, and if you've only got one bed, you know, if you've got one small bed and you want to grow a lot of different vegetables, very difficult to do a four-year rotation on that. <laughs> you, you know, you haven't got enough yeah. space. So you, it just mix it all up. I've, I'm doing that here with my um, some trial beds again where I pretty much plant anything wherever I feel like it every year. But I, I, I look to move them around a bit. And I'm also doing second cropping, so that means two crops a year. Um, so that you know, would would make the four year break very, very, very tricky. <laughs> but I, I just don't bother about it, and and it, it's it's all thriving. That's all I can say. And it looks lovely because you have got that lovely mixture of colours and and shapes of leaves and all that kind of thing. We're really tearing up the rule book today, aren't we? I'm loving it. <laughs> it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite liberating. Before you go, I just wondered whether there were any um, particular varieties that you think work really well with no dig or just ones that you love growing and any perhaps that, you know, people should steer clear of or is nothing uh, off bounds with no dig? Oh, I would say I don't find any problems or difficulties growing anything more i'd look on the positive of that one and um encourage anyone who hasn't grown charlotte potatoes to have a look at that one because being a second early it finishes growing by the end of july and that means often it avoids the blight which can arrive like um we've seen so often in august so you get it out of the ground you you could it also although it's a second early it stores really well and i put mine in a potato sack and they're harvested in July, and I can still be eating them in May, like 10 months later. That's so impressive. I grew Charlotte's last year, but they didn't last that long. But I think that's just because I like potatoes a lot. <laughs> well, make sure they're dry when you put them in your, your sack. Make sure there's no light on it. They don't have to be cool even, because potatoes don't start sprouting until they're triggered by the drop-in temperatures that you get towards the end of autumn. So you, you, they can be in a warm place until Christmas, and then they will start sprout. We actually rub the sprouts off a couple of times, and that slows down the... the taking of energy out of the tuber but yeah i can assure you they're really nice to eat even as late as um, late spring um and then maybe what one more um lettuce i'd just recommend any kind of lettuce and and about the harvesting method i'd recommend which is taking off the outer leaves and that way you can keep your plants growing for a very long time and you, you don't need to keep re-sowing your lettuces so you just repeat picks and plants can be 10 to 12 weeks of harvest from one sowing um just for example Brilliant. Thanks, Jess. Uh, actually, before um, we came on the on here today, uh, I googled um, no dig and just to see what it said as like the top results. And one of the questions that it suggested that people ask a lot was simply, is no dig gardening any good? And uh, I think it's a nice note to finish on that perhaps it is and you've convinced me and you've probably convinced a lot of people listening at home. So thank you very much. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> I think the, there's so much evidence now that no dig is is just brilliant. Actually, um, it's just it's more of a for for gardeners for us um, changing mindset and and seeing how it, you can work with nature and that makes life so much easier. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.